0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, Daniel chapter 11 is where we're going to hang out tonight. But before we begin, I want to play a little game with you guys tonight and ask some trivia questions about some important dates, events, and people in world history. So this is, you, this is audience participation. You can, you can yell these out. So um, who sailed the ocean blue in 1492? Columbus. Columbus. Christopher Columbus. Columbus. All right. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. What, what is this? Opening words to what speech? Four score and seven years. Four score and seven years ago. Yeah, and, Yeah, but what's, what, what is it? I don't know. It's, it's Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg. Yes, it's yeah. Abraham. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, AD 476, this renowned empire crumbled, opening the way for modern Europe. The I Germanic wonder, tribes came in and basically the, this, this empire crumbled. 476 AD, the Roman Empire roman empire okay in 1455 this german invented something that radically changed the world and how people received the bible and how people received the printing printing press okay (laughs) on october 31st 1517 another famous german nailed something to a door which started the protestant reformation who was that king martin luther okay 1859, this infamous scientist published a book that rocked the world. 1859, he's a British scientist that's pretty famous for bringing up something that we don't believe in. It was Darwin, Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. Okay, does anybody know what year the silicon chip was invented, which launched the modern computer age? What, what year was the silicon chip invented? It's kind of surprising. 1959. Yeah, it was a long time ago. A long time ago. <laughs> All right. This was a major event that happened on November 14th, 1971. Oh, yeah. Currency. I was born. <laughs> it's my birthday. That's my birthday. Oh, you're on November 14th? Okay. Oh, mm-hmm. 71. May of 71? Okay, so you're just a little bit older than I am. So some of you, like when I started saying, hey, let's do history, you were like, Ugh, I don't want to do history. I don't, I don't like remembering all these facts and figures. And so the study of history is one of those subjects that you either hate it or you like it, you're bored by it, or you're excited by it. But one thing we have to remember is that history is not random. God has sovereignly orchestrated history to unfold the way that it unfolds. So let's turn back to chapter two for a moment and just remember, this was many, many weeks ago, Let me get my glasses here. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21. This is talking about God. He, that's God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. So God changes times. God orders history. History unfolds the way that God has ordained it to unfold. Now, we may think there's millions and millions of random decisions that people make all over the world, but there really is nothing random in God's universe. God is the orchestrator of all things. Now, why do I draw your attention to history? History lesson. Daniel chapter 11 is one big history lesson. It unfolds for us the events that happen in world history. In this chapter, it can be pretty dull if you don't know what's happening. But here's what's amazing about this passage of Scripture. This is not history. To us, it's history. But when, hey Cole, come on in. When Daniel wrote it, it was prophecy. Prophecy. Now, it's history for us. But when Daniel wrote it, he was prophesying what was going to happen. And so, here's the problem. This passage of Scripture has baffled the liberal theologians because they can't believe that Daniel would have been so specific about future events. They think it wasn't written by Daniel, and it was written after the events occurred. So let me ask you a question. Can God work in a man's mind and heart to write what will happen and then it does happen exactly the way he wrote it to happen. Okay, Yes, if you believe in a sovereign God, in a miraculous God. And so what liberal theologians do is they say this can't be true, this can't be so. Daniel could not have written this before these events happened. He had to have been looking back on them and wrote about them after the fact, because nobody could be this specific going forward. Nobody can be that prophetic in what would happen in world events. So one of the things I want to begin tonight, before we get to Daniel chapter 11, is I want to talk about the inerrancy of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture is under attack today. Now, what do I mean by inerrancy? That's kind of a theological buzzword. Have you guys heard the term inerrancy, the, the authority of Scripture? So what I want us to do is I want us to think about what the Bible says about itself, and then I want us to go to Daniel chapter 11. In order to do that, we have to go to the New Testament. So I want us to go, we'll come back to Daniel, but the reason I start here is because this passage in Daniel, liberal scholars don't accept as having been written by Daniel. They just kind of say this, this can't be so. So let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, and let's see what the Bible says about itself. 2 Timothy. So is everybody in the New Testament now? 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. Oh, scripture is inspired by God. Yeah, that's where we're at. <laughs> you're right. You're right, Larry. All right, so let's start in verse 15. Paul's talking to to Timothy, his young son of the faith. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, there's there's three things I want us to think about in this passage of Scripture. Paul says, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Grafe is the Greek word there. Scripture. What are the sacred writings that Paul is referring to? It refers to the written word of God, in particular the Old Testament. Because has the New Testament been completed at the time that Paul's writing to Timothy? no. What Timothy's reading is the Old Testament. So the Old Testament are the sacred writings. But notice what Paul says there at the beginning of verse 16. All. All Scripture. The totality of the written Word of God. All. That means Genesis through maps. (coughs) Genesis through Revelation. Maps are at the back of your Bible. It's kind of a joke. I can take it, you guys aren't, like, you're supposed to laugh, but you're not, that's all. Right. All scripture. But the most important word there is all scripture is breathed out by God. What does it mean that the written word is breathed out? It's, it's two words together, Theo, theonustos, theonustos. It literally means God breathed, God's breath, God breathed it out. So here's what it means. What it means that the scripture, all scripture, all the written scripture, it means this, God has breathed out his very word into the hearts and minds of the writers of scripture so that what was written down is the literal word of God down to the very last, most minute detail. Now, some translations say inspired. All scriptures inspired, And that's that's a fine translation. But sometimes that can be a little confusing. Because when you hear the word inspired, we kind of have some weird understandings of the word inspired today um, in our culture. So, for example, we can think of the word, something's inspiring. Or somebody was inspired to do something. So, like, you could say, Shakespeare was inspired to write Romeo and Juliet. But that's not what it means, because that's, that's a human writing a work of art. Or you could say the Nuggets were inspired to win the NBA championship this past summer. They were, they, they were really motivated. They were inspired to do that. Or you could say like a, a writer or a singer or an artist was inspired to write the new song. It doesn't mean that the scripture is inspiring, although it can be. And it doesn't mean when you read the Bible you feel some type of inspiration or some type of motivation what it means is is that god supernaturally worked in the hearts and minds of the scripture writers so that what they wrote down every bit of it is god's very breathed out word now we don't know exactly how this happened i don't think it was like a little parrot on the shoulder like talking to the writer, and he's like a stenographer in a courtroom. Um, we, we're not given the exact method on how God did this. There's one scripture that gives us some information, possibly, on how God did this. We know he, we know that the final product, the scripture, the written scripture, the final product, what we have here, is literally God-breathed. But 1 Peter 1, 20-21, gives us kind of an idea here. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't like Paul sat down and said, hey, this is a cool thing I'm going to write. This is kind of a cool thing. No, it says men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's what it means. Is that supposed to be 2 Peter or 1 Peter? 2 Peter. Sorry, did I say 1 Peter? Yeah, it's 2 Peter. It means this, the Holy Spirit powerfully and supernaturally guided the human authors to write the Scriptures. Somehow God worked in their hearts and minds to write down exactly what He wanted written down. Okay. So, if that's true... And it is that if all scriptures God breathed and God worked in the hearts and minds of the scripture writers to write stuff down, and there's a logical and a theological conclusion. There's a therefore. The therefore is this. We must believe that the entire Bible is absolutely true without any errors. So inerrancy means without errors means the Bible contains no errors, the Bible contains no contradictions, the Bible has no mistakes, the Bible is the final product, That's the God-breathed Word. So, there's no mistakes, there's no errors, it's not like somebody looking at Daniel 11 and saying, Daniel couldn't have possibly written this before it happened, because there's no way he could have predicted these things. Well, if the Holy Spirit's superintending him to write it down, then yes, God can do that. God's not going to lie. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of a man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God's not going to lead the scripture writers to write down something that's not true. And he's going to prevent them from error. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God proves true. And then Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now notice your word is truth. Jesus could have said your word is true. There'd be nothing wrong with him saying your word is true. But he says your word is truth. Stronger. Okay, so how reliable is the Old Testament? Could Daniel have possibly written these things before they happened? Well, let's talk about how Jesus himself viewed the Old Testament. Because how Jesus viewed the Old Testament is going to help us understand how we should read the Old Testament. And so there are two evidences or arguments I'm going to make from Jesus on how Jesus understood the Old Testament and how we should. So here's number one Jesus believed in the authority of the entirety of Scripture. Down to the most minute details. And how do we know that? Well, Matthew five seventeen through 18 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay. The Law and the Prophets. When Jesus talks about the Law and the Prophets, that is shorthand for the entirety of the Old Testament. The Law and the Prophets, and the writings. So Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, I've come to fulfill it. And it's not going to pass away, not an iota or a dot. An iota or a dot. Now, what was an iota? Why does Jesus call it an iota? That's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Jesus is probably referring to the the smallest little stroke of a pen in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, the smallest alphabetic symbol is what we call the yod or the jot. The jot and the tittle. I think some of the King James calls it jot and tittle. So basically... What Jesus is saying is this, jot and tittle, iota, dot, the the tiniest strokes of a pen on the scroll, what Jesus is basically saying is this, Jesus had the highest possible view of the Old Testament scriptures down to the, the, the most minor stroke of the pen. It's like down to the very exact wording, Jesus believed it to be true. And notice the permanence of it, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will not pass away. Okay, so Jesus says, even down to the most minute detail, dates, people, events, those things are sovereignly written by human authors, but God has given them exactly what to say. Okay, So Jesus had the highest authority of Scripture down to the the smallest of of strokes of the pen. But second, Jesus believed the Scriptures revealed actual facts of history. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, Jonah was not really swallowed by a big fish. That was an allegory. Nobody can really be swallowed by a fish and be in a fish for three days and be spit up. That's kind of an allegory. That, That really didn't happen. What did Jesus say about that? In Matthew again, Matthew twelve forty through forty two. Listen to Jesus. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation to condemn it. For if they repented at the preaching of Jonah, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment with this generation. And condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, does Jesus literally believe in a man named Jonah, swallowed by a fish? Did Jesus say, hey guys, this is an allegory. It didn't really happen. That's just kind of a fable from the Old Testament. No, Jesus understood, and and what does Jesus equate it to? Jonah was in the belly of the fish for how many days? Three days. Jesus says, I'm going to be in the earth for... So if you allegorize Jonah, you could allegorize the resurrection and say, well, that's kind of a fable too. He also believed that the queen of Sheba was a real person. So Jesus believed in the literal events of history. So Jesus had the highest view of the Old Testament down to the the smallest stroke of the pen, the most minute of, of details. He also had... The belief that these were actual events in history that literally happened. Now, one of the greatest proof, excuse me, proofs, excuse me—proofs of the Old Testament reliability comes from the archaeological evidence found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, they came to Denver Museum. What was it about six years ago? And I was able to go up to the Dead Sea Scroll event and see them. They're a lot smaller than what I expected. Um, but they had the scrolls there in like in this big encasement, and you could actually go through and, and so you got to actually see parts of the actual Dead Sea scrolls. So here's what happens: before the discovery of the Dead Sea scrolls, they were discovered in 1947. The earliest manuscripts of the Old Testament were from what we call the Leningrad Codex. So I'm, I'm gonna just write here on the board. So the Leningrad, so Let's say from about a thousand BC to seventy-eight. Let's get well, let's let's say this. From about a thousand BC to about two hundred BC, this is kind of the um well, let's actually Let me me not write that down. I don't want to confuse you. The Old Testament was written a long time ago. Okay. So, the oldest manuscripts we have are from 1008 AD. Okay, so that's the oldest. Up until 1947, okay, so from, do your math here, 1947 minus 1008 AD, how many years is that? Thousand years. For a thousand years, the oldest manuscripts we were working with were from, could be dated to 1880. Okay? Now, in 1947, a young shepherd boy threw a rock in a cave near the Dead Sea, shattered a pot, found copies of the Old Testament dated from. Where do you find them dated from? 250 B.C. to 50 A.D. Now let me ask you a question. Which is older, the ones they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Leningrad Codex? These ones, right? The ones they found. So they found these in 1947 and they dated them and they went further back than this, almost a 1,000 years further back. So what do you want to do? What do you want to do to make sure that you have accurate translations? What would you do? You would lay out a modern translation of the Bible from say let's let's say we got a translation from 1945. You want to take a translation from 1945 and you'd want it like so here's the here's the translation from 1945. You'd want to put what you found way back here in 250 BC and you want to compare the two. And what are you going to look for? Has anything changed over time? Because that's a long period of time. Has anything changed from here to here? Has anything changed from here to here? Okay? So that's what they did. They laid out the modern translations of the Bible, which was probably the King James Version. And then they laid out the Leningrad Codex from 1008 A.D., and then they laid out the Dead Sea Scroll. So they, they have three, you have three copies here. you got the ones dated from 250 B.C., you have the ones dated from 1008 A.D., and let's say you have one from 1945 A.D. And so you're going to compare these three sets of Old Testament texts. Now what would you think, what, what would a liberal scholar say? Oh man, there's been tons of changes from 250. Like everything's changed from 250 BC to 1945. There's been a lot of changes. The Bible's changed over time. You can't trust it because it's just changing. What we have today is nothing close to what they had back then. What did what'd they find? Well, here's the beauty. When you lay down all three of those scrolls, you find that there's not been any change in the translations, going all the way back to 250 B.C. That's a, huge, that's a huge issue. Because what it shows is that for thousands of years, God has preserved the Old Testament to where there's not been change. Now, there's another archaeological evidence that happened as well. In 1970, in, the, in, in Gedi, Israel archaeologists found an ancient scroll that was burned. It was excavated from a chest that they found in a synagogue. It's the oldest Hebrew scroll that was found since the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, So it's another scroll, not the Dead Sea Scroll, it's another scroll, but it was burned. And they were afraid if they unrolled the scroll as a burned scroll, they would destroy it and not be able to see what, what was in it. So they had this scroll since 1970, and they, they really didn't know what to do with it. Well, in 2014, because of the technology, they performed a high resolution 3D scanning of the burnt scroll. Um, and what they found, that it contained the first eight verses of the book of Leviticus. And they compared it. What do you think they compared it to? They compared it to the Leningrad Codex. They compared it to the Dead Sea Scrolls. They compared, all, they compared it. What do you think they found? Again, no difference. There's also another archaeological find in Egypt. After um, there, there was a list of stopping places the Israelites traveled out of Egypt in the Exodus It's now a list of cities along a similar route on the temple wall of Karnak, Egypt, from 1504 to 1450 BC. So they've even found archaeological evidence going all the way back to the time of the Exodus to show that the the route that the Israelites came out of Egypt was true. Okay? So, we took that little discursion. We haven't gotten to Daniel yet. The reason I take us on that excursion is to show you that there are people today that do not believe in the authority of the Bible. And I'm saying Christians. We, as a church, are in a minority among evangelical Christians when it comes to believing in the inerrancy, authority, and inspiration of Scripture. Most seminaries today have stopped teaching stuff like this you come to this passage in Daniel and most seminaries today, they're going to say this can't be written by Daniel. This was edited later on by an editor. They came in after the fact because this possibly can't happen. So the Bible is always under attack because people don't believe in the sovereignty of God to protect the Bible. And so it's interesting. You guys remember that old game of telephone when you were a kid? Do you remember? Te- does anybody remember telephone like First person starts and they say something. Like if I were to say something to Cole and Cole say something to Brandon and Brandon, and I go all the way around and it comes back to me, what's the point of the game? Hopefully that the, the thing stayed the same. What usually happens? It's like something totally off the wall. Okay. Think about how many thousands of years we have here that you could have had a telephone situation where something started way back here in 250 DC and it comes up here to 1947 and you've got something totally different but you don't. It's intact. It's preserved because God sovereignly did that. So I just want you to understand that we here at our church believe the authority of the Bible, and it's so important because a lot of people don't. And so when we get to Daniel chapter 11, liberal scholars say there's no way that Daniel could have predicted these things that came true. So with that being said, that's a long introduction. Let's go to Daniel chapter 11. And we will see this unfold. And this is a long chapter. And it kind of gets, to be to be honest with you, when I was studying Daniel chapter 11, it kind of got a little murky and kind of like, kind of got a little dull. and like, what is this all about? So I'm going to do my best. Instead of going verse by verse and line by line like I normally do, I'm going to kind of just show you the highlights of what's going on in the passage of Scripture. So let's just um, read 11, 1 through 4. Okay, and as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against all the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Okay, what in the world is this all about? What this is a prophecy of in this first section is the king of Persia, Xerxes I. He was the husband of Esther, the queen. And then it talks about a king coming after him from Greece, Alexander the Great. Now, not much is given here because it's dealt with elsewhere. And so, basically, that literally happened in history. Alexander the Great, the king from Greece, came and took over the kingdom of Persia. Okay? The next section focuses on the conflict between the two kingdoms of the north and the South. And this makes a lot of sense today when you look at issues going on in the Middle East because these conflicts have always happened based upon where Israel is geographically. Okay? If I were to have a map, let's just look at a map. I don't have a map. Do you guys have a map in your Bible? you guys have maps in your Bibles? you have a map at the back? If not, I'll... What? I said Genesis to maps, huh? I should have brought okay, so I'll just pull my pull my map up here. If you look at which one is it? Well let's just do this, okay. Okay, this is the Mediterranean Sea. and this is like way out here is Italy okay what nation do you have down here at the tip of Africa you have Egypt right and then down here you have the Dead Sea this little sliver of land what is this little sliver of land right here on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea that's Israel right what's north of Israel in biblical times okay so Syria in Egypt Israel's always been between Syria and Egypt and north of Syria you have two nations nowadays you have Iran and you have Iraq which back then basically was Babylon so you have a major world power in Egypt and you have a major world power in Israel Babylon and then in between them in this tiny little area is Israel so it's always been like geographically positioned between these major powers, this tiny little sliver of land. And so when you read what's going on here in Daniel chapter 11, 5 through 20, you've got the northern kingdom of Syria, and you've got the southern kingdom of Egypt, and if you look at the uh, map, Israel's right in the middle. So I'm not necessarily going to read that, um, because We can just kind of get um, bogged down in all of the, the historical minutia. But let me just give you some history here of what happened, okay? So in 250 BC, the Egyptian king Ptolemy tried to make peace with the king of Syria, okay? So the king of Egypt tried to make peace with the king of Syria by sending his daughter, Bernice, to marry him. The plan was that Antiochus II would divorce his first wife, disinherit her sons, but she discovered the plot, and she had her husband Antiochus and Bernice poisoned, along with her young son. And the same year, Bernice's dad, the king of Egypt, died, and he was succeeded by her brother. And they invaded the northern kingdom and conquered its capital. And so that's basically what's going on here in all of chapter 11 here, verses 5 through 20. And we could go on and on in this chapter to show how these prophecies were fulfilled in literal his- history, but I, I don't, I, I don't want to bore you. Basically, things got really bad in 175 B.C. That's what the assassination of Seleucius at the hands of someone we have seen before, and it's the little horn. You remember the little horn we talked about a few months ago? He was called the little horn. Um, He's kind of a picture of the Antichrist back in chapter eight. His name's Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? So chapter 11, verses five through 20 is a bunch of history about how Egypt kind of went to war with Syria and how Israel was caught right in the middle of it. And those things literally happened in history. So Daniel's prophesying what literally happened in history before it happened. Okay? Now let's actually read 21 through 35. Okay? You guys are going to skip down to verse 21. Actually, let's start with verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall rise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in with warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with the small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoiling goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for plot shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down, slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work with his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be... This time, as it was before, for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall return back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Okay, what in the world is going on here? This is all about Antiochus Epiphanes. The little horn. In 175 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes seized the throne and gave himself the title Epiphanes. Now, Epiphanes means I am God or illustrious one. So he's the king that basically takes the name I am God. I'm the one in charge. Now, we saw this back in chapter 8. He was deceptive. He was manipulative. Um, He sent his tax collector to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, the holy day of the week, to come. Here's what he he did, okay? He sent his tax collector to come into, quote-unquote, church on Sabbath as kind of a, like, to, to show that there was peace. And what ended up happening was they massacred the Jews and ransacked the temple as they were worshiping. And what this, what, what Antiochus Epiphanes did was he burned the scriptures, he put an end to the sacrificial system, and he killed over 20,000 men, women, and even children. Anti-Semitic, hor- horrifying things. Reminds you a lot of what Hamas did a few months ago. He did this in Jerusalem. But the grossest moment of blaspheming was when he slaughtered a pig on the altar of the temple in honor of the Greek god Zeus, and this is called the abomination that causes desolation, okay? Number one, pig was an unclean animal. To bring a pig into the holy temple was sacrilegious, and then to slaughter a pig on the temple mount to Zeus was the height of blasphemy, because basically Antiochus is saying, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not God. And the sacrificial system is not by bulls and goats, by the blood, the way that God, God prescribed it. I'm going to profane that by using an unclean animal, a pig, and I'm going to slaughter it to Zeus. But he was a smooth-talking politician, and he got many Jews to come to his side. Even the high priest, Melanius, was rewarded for coming over to the dark side. Okay? But there was an uprising. So this is something in Jewish history that maybe you've not heard of, but you need to be aware of. Okay, This is what we call intertestamental. So this is a, this is between, it's in that 400 years between the end of the New Te- Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Okay, So those silent years. So when Malachi ends, Malachi ends 400 years, the last book of the Old Testament... 400 years before the coming of Christ. So in that 400-year period, there are some things that happened in Jewish history. So during this time, so this is around 250 BC, during this time, there was a faithful group of Jews who would not bow to Antiochus or to his blasphemies. So there was a priest named Matthias, or Mattathias He had five sons, including one son named Judas. Okay? They... Came to be known as the Maccabees because Maccabees means hammer. Hammer. They started a revolt against Antiochus and eventually they were powerful enough to overthrow the Syrian king. It was called the Maccabean Revolt or the Maccabean Revolution. So these faithful Jews banded together, had a military uprising, got rid of this despot, this dictator. And basically, overcame him with the Maccabean revolt. But this was a time of major persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes. Many were imprisoned, many were killed, many were slaughtered. In um, this period, this revolt, this period of extreme warfare and persecution, guess how long it lasted? Three and a half years. Three and a half years is a symbolic number, going all the way back to Daniel, of a period of intense persecution. So whenever you see three and a half years, that's a symbolic or a a code word for intense persecution. And so, since God is sovereign over all things, the reign of Antiochus came to an end in 163 BC when he died. Basically, he died of insanity because he was defeated in battle and he couldn't handle it. Okay, so... That's what this passage of Scripture is all about, is is about Antiochus Epiphanes, his rise to power in Jerusalem, the Maccabean revolt. And again, these things happened hundreds of years after Daniel lived. These, These things were literally fulfilled. So again, how could Daniel predict these things that literally came true? Now, there's a switch here. In verse 36, most scholars believe there's a switch where Daniel is no longer prophesying about Antiochus Epiphanes, but he's going to the end times, talking about the Antichrist himself. So it's like, it skips to, okay, we're not just going to immediate future, but we're going into like the end times, end times. And so um, most scholars believe verses 36 through 45 speak of the end of the age. That end times, Antichrist. Because the descriptions of the ruler in verses 36-45 to don't fit the historical data we have regarding Antiochus Epiphanes. It doesn't fit his profile. So let's, let's read this and keep in mind that this last section is probably talking about the future future. Like way into, not, not like immediate future where Daniel's talking about in the next couple of hundred, two or three hundred years. We're talking about like, maybe within our lifetime or maybe not, but just that that end times Antichrist. So let's read verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one Beloved by women, he shall pay attention to in, he shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, The king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and of all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Okay. This is an unnamed king. We don't know the identity of this quote unquote king, but most scholars believe this is talking about the end times Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, who's going to set himself up to be in the place of God. Remember, Antichrist doesn't, anti doesn't necessarily mean against God, it does. Anti also, that little Greek prefix can also mean in the place of God. So Antichrist can mean, I stand against God, but I also want to stand in the place of God. I want to be God. Okay, so Antiochus Epiphanes was kind of a picture. Remember, his name means I am God. He's a picture in history of the future end times Antichrist. There's been many Antichrists throughout history that have stood against God and His people, but there will be a final one-man Antichrist, ultimate end times man of lawlessness that Paul talks about. Now, Again, we, we know from last week, we talked about spiritual warfare. We talked about how Satan is alive and well. There's this cosmic battle going on. We, we know that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, it will be a spiritual battle. Now, we don't know his identity. We don't know when that will happen. We just know that it, it talks about it. So what are some characteristics? Let's make this practical, okay? So this, again, this, this passage is dense. Let's, let's get some practicality here tonight. What are some characteristics of this Antichrist that we also see in our culture today? Okay? Let's just ask it this way. Do we live in an anti-Christian culture? An anti can mean, I'm against Christ, or I want to be my own Christ. Okay? Do we see that today? All right, let's look at some characteristics of today's culture. First of all, we live in what I call, I'm in charge of my own destiny culture. I'm in charge of my own destiny. I can do whatever I dang well please. And nobody can stop me. I can express myself. I can be who I am. You have no right to tell me. If I want to perceive myself to be a boy, I can be a boy. If I perceive myself to be a girl, I can be a girl. If I perceive myself, whatever I perceive myself to be that gives me the greatest pleasure, I have the right to express myself and you have no right to stop me from doing that. I can do whatever I want. Okay. Look at verse 36. What does it say about this man? In verse 36. How is he described? The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every other God. The king shall do as he wills. That's a very interesting language, especially in the Psalms. That's language used for God, the Lord, the living God. The Lord is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. The Lord does as he wills. So this man basically wants to be God, be in the place of God. In our culture, we live in a culture where people say, what if Frederick Nietzsche, the, the guy that, Friedrich Nietzsche was a German philosopher back in the 1800s. He was an atheist. And he said this, If there is a God, I can't stand to not be that God. If there is a God, he's like, if there is a God, I don't believe there is a God. But if there is a God, I want to be that God. It's kind of a weird statement. I don't want to believe there's God. I'm going to be an atheist. But if there is a God, I don't want that God to be God. I want to be God. And so that's kind of the culture we're living in. (coughs) And I want to be in charge of my own life culture. Okay, second, we live in a sinful age just like the Antichrist who... Blasphemes God. Do we live? What is blasphemy? Look at verse 36. He shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He will speak things against God. That's what blasphemy means. Now, 2 Thessalonians talks about the man of sin, the end times man of sin. Listen to how Paul describes the man of sin. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes himself, or opposes and exalts himself against every so called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be That's what the end times Antichrist is going to want to take the place of God. Here, he's speaking against God. Okay, so the Antichrist is known by different names. He's called the Antichrist. He's called the man of lawlessness. In Revelation 13, he's called the beast. So you've got the beast from the sea, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, it's all the same same person. So listen to what Revelation 13 describes him as. Revelation 13, 5-6. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. What exactly is blasphemy? It's a word we don't use. I mean, you, you hear it a lot around church. Blasphemy, that's blasphemous. It's blasphemy. Blasphemy literally means to speak evilly against God. To either use God's name as a cuss word, to, 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 to yell at God, to shout at God, to, to, to hatefully speak about God with your mouth, to blaspheme. But I also think that not only can you speak blasphemies out of your mouth, But you can also have a lifestyle that shows a blasphemous rebellion against God. Basically, blasphemy is whether you you say it or whether you live it. You're basically saying, I want to be God, I hate God, and I'm against God. And I'm violently opposed to it. Now, here's the thing. Us as Christians probably are never going to be guilty of outright blasphemy against God. But, how many times do we live as if we don't care much about God and His work? We rebel in our hearts and say, yeah, I know what the Bible says, I know what God says, but I'm going to kind of do my own thing. That, in a way, is blasphemy in a sense, because you're basically saying, I'm not going to obey God, even though I know I should I have a rebellious heart. It's easy to point the finger at the blasphemous culture out there and say, man, those non-Christians, they're blasphemous. When we have to look at our own hearts and say, now, wait a minute. There are times when I don't do what God asked me to do and I can have a rebellious spirit. And I wouldn't call myself a blasphemer, but in a way, in your heart, you could be like, I'm disobeying God and being rebellious. Okay, so number one, there is the I am God. Number 2, I hate God, okay? <laughs> kind of like Nietzsche. If there is a god, I cannot stand not to be that god, okay? So I I am God, therefore I, <laughs> I hate God. Okay, so here's the third thing. We also live in a culture where might is right or power and corruption are legitimized as normal. Now, look at verse 38. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. The God of fortresses. And what in the world does that mean? Basically, what it means is, is, for this Antichrist, military power, violence, and might will be the highest God of the Antichrist. I want to amass, and look at the things he wants to amass there in verse 38. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly Gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. I So here's the Antichrist. He wants to get rich and wealthy through military might and power and to wage that power. So ultimately it's about ultimate power. What do most tyrants want? Power. He wants power. So, if you think about Who this Antichrist embodies. I want to be God. I hate God. And I want power. Especially military power and wealth. So that I can wield my power across the world and do whatever I want. Now, let's just ask yourselves a question. Does that... Mark some of the attitude that we see in our culture today? I want to be God. I hate God. And I want power. You see that today, don't you? And what it does is it boils down to a battleful truth. So here's the thing Is the Antichrist going to win out? Is this, is this cultural attitude of the Antichrist going to eventually win out? It might be what people live for during that time, and they'll be fooled into it. But how does it end? Well, Paul tells us. In the end, we know that victory is Christ, and that the future of the Antichrist will be destroyed. We find out the end in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-10. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. So not only is this going to be, I want to be God, I hate God, I want power, but behind it all is going to be satanic machinations, if you will. Satanic inspiration. But Jesus is going to come back and when he comes back he's going to destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth now as we've seen from Daniel chapter 11 history's not random Which, what I did what I didn't show you was in the first 35 verses there are at least 135 prophecies that have been fulfilled that can be verified throughout history and archaeology 135. That's a lot. And remember, Daniel wrote this as a prophecy, not as history looking back. He wrote what was going to happen. And it literally happened, and there's 135 of those that literally came true. So God controls history, God is sovereignly in charge. And and, and remember we live in two kingdoms. What are the two kingdoms we live in? Where's our true citizenship? It's in heaven. Are we there yet? No. We're still on this earth. And so we have to live in this kingdom. We're waiting for that kingdom. And there's that tension, like, I want to be in heaven, but I'm still here. And and really, my heart is there. My home is there, but I'm still here. And there's still this battle. And so how do you live? So Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our true home is in heaven. That's where we were, that's where we've been saved to live forever, not to live here. And so we should be waiting for Jesus to come back, and it should be a battle until he comes back. And so here's the question. How, it's the how question, how do we live as strangers in a strange land as history unfolds? How do we endure as believers in an age that stands opposed to God? How do we remain faithful? Okay, I'm going to suggest four ways we can do that. And we will see that here from chapter 11. As things get worse or possibly better. Or how, how do you live the Christian life in the midst of a difficult culture? How? Okay, let me, let me give you four. First. We must exercise brave faith. Now, why do I say exercise brave faith? Because look at verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. There are some people that are going to be seduced by flattery. And that was talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. He's going to seduce many people. There will be people who will be seduced by this world. They'll be seduced by the devil. But notice what it says there in verse 32. But the people who know their God will do what? Stand firm and take action. They will stand firm and... And take action. In our culture, we need to stand firm and take action. What's the opposite of standing firm? Drifting, being blown away, being caught up, being seduced. What's the opposite of taking action? Being apathetic, doing nothing. Hebrews three, twelve through fourteen says this Take care, brothers, let me put this on the screen. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Encourage one another every day as long as it's called today. Let me ask you a question. When is it not today? When it's tomorrow. Then when tomorrow comes, it's what? Today. Okay. So we're always to be encouraging one another because if we don't encourage one another, there's a temptation to fall away, to drift away, to not stand firm. When you are in isolation as a Christian and don't have... I mean, there's all men in here in this room tonight. So if we don't have men around us, especially, to hold us accountable, to encourage us, it's very easy for us to kind of drift away. Okay, now, do you wake up one day and automatically become this rebellious, like fallen away, hard-hearted Christian? Does it happen like that? Like you wake up, like the day before you were good and the next day you wake up? No, it happens what? With a what? A drift. A drift. A slow drift, a slow drift, and pretty soon you're over here when you should have been over here. And then that encouragement keeps you from drifting, from falling away. So, number one, we stand firm. Those who know their God, what does it say there in verse 32? Those, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Okay, so stand firm and take action. All right, number two, we must endure suffer, suffering well. Um, in verses 31 through 35, it talks about people being persecuted by the sword, or flames, or taken into captivity. Um, we are called to suffer well. Now, in some cultures, there's more suffering than others. We, we really don't know persecution the way some believers understand persecution in other countries. But here in America, you can go through suffering. You go through times of intense persecution. Um, We're called to endure whatever happens to us, to suffer well. And verse 35 speaks about this. Some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. What does it mean to be refined and purified? What does that language like? Refined and purified. How are you refined and purified? You're taken through what? How did, they, how, did they, how did they melt down metals back then? They would put the metals in the iron ore, get it so hot so that the dross would rise to the top. They'd scoop the dross off so there would be that clean, refined gold or whatever. And Peter talks about that. 1 Peter one 6-7. In this... You rejoice, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We go through times of trial and fire and testing to so that we come out on the other side refined. Okay, I've often given this illustration before. Okay, Let's say you have a pair of dirty clothes they're grubby they're greasy they're grimy they got to get clean what's the only way to get those clothes clean put them in the washing machine what happens when they're in the washing machine they have to go through the agitation process and, like my our washing machine's really loud and they spin around and it goes through all this stuff okay and then you got to put them through the dryer and then you know, put a little fabric softener in there or whatever and, and then they come out clean They have to go through a process, though. Sometimes God may take you through that washing machine process or that refining fire process, an agitated process to get you clean and refined. And the only way he's going to get you clean and refined is to take you through that process. It may be painful, but that's what God's taking you through, to get you to where he wants you to be. And we shouldn't fear. Matthew Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So number one, stand firm. Number two, endure suffering well. Here's third. We must see this as an opportunity to teach others about the truth. We see this in verse 33. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, but for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame by captivity and plunder. Okay, There's that persecution piece there. But the first part of that, the wise among the people shall make many understand. When you go through trials, how you respond is a living object lesson to other people around you when they look at how you go through trials. You're, you're teaching them by your example, and so the question is, what are you teaching others? Okay, is, is your life? It's not here's the point your life's a testimony, not whether your life's a testimony. It's the question is a good testimony or a bad testimony. What is your life? What, what are you teaching? How, how are you responding, it's especially to those that, that are against you? Second 2 Timothy 2: 2, 24-26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So how you respond, like when you correct other people, when you patiently endure evil, when you're gentle, that does express to others how you're handling suffering. Okay? And then fourth, this is kind of the overall theme of chapters 10, 11, 12. We must be a people of prayer. All right, chapters 10, 11, and 12 is one big unit in its one vision. And how does it start? It starts with Daniel mourning and praying and fasting for three weeks. Remember? He's spending three weeks in fasting and prayer. And so as world events and things in our lives before us we see these things and they kind of get weird and crazy we need to remind ourselves that god is sovereignly in control and we cling to him in prayer god has to be the one to answer our prayers god we rely upon god we trust god we pray to god and so it's not a time to be passive so here's some questions to ask yourself related to these four things we talked about and okay, these are just recap here's some questions to ask yourself Am I exercising brave faith in light of what's happening around me? Am I a pessimist about the future? Do I get so caught up in what's going wrong in the world that I don't see how God is at work? I think sometimes we as Christians can get so caught up in all the things that are going wrong and all the craziness that we don't stop and say, wait, God's doing some things in his grace and there are some positive things that are happening. Um, And am I I exercising faith in the midst of this? Second, again, questions to ask yourself. Are you suffering well? Are you enduring hardship with a Christ-like attitude? Third, are you taking opportunities to teach others? This doesn't mean that you're a Sunday school teacher or a growth group leader or that you're in an official teaching capacity. It just means that is your life giving forth the testimony of Christ? What are you? Who are you influencing for the gospel? What is your life showing forth for others as an example? And then the last question is: How is your prayer life? Are you desperate for God to work? Are you fighting this battle on your knees? So, in the end, it doesn't depend upon our efforts, the intensity of our prayers. It always comes back to Jesus and the gospel. So we can only do this, we can only stand firm, we can only pray, we can only endure suffering, not because of anything within ourselves, but because of the power that Jesus gives us in the gospel, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it's interesting. Um, I want you to think about something for a moment. As obedient as Daniel was in his commitment to God, as committed as Moses was in leading Israel into the promised land, is obedient as prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. You think about the suffering of Job. You think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You think about Samuel. You think about all those, Noah, all those Old Testament people. Here's something those Old Testament saints did not know about. There was a mystery hidden to them that was made known to us And it makes all the difference to how we fight the battle in this fragile life. What's the mystery? Now, they had an understanding, through a glass darkly, of a Messiah. Based upon the covenant of grace, they knew that there was going to come one day a Messiah who would save his people from their sins. But it was almost like it was a mystery. It was was shrouded. What does Paul say has happened to us? in Colossians 1, 26 and 27. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And here's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. They understood that there was a Messiah that was going to come because of Genesis 3.15. They knew that the head of the, of the, the serpent would be crushed by this Messiah that would come. They had the sacrificial system that pointed to Jesus. But one thing they didn't know was that Christ would actually come, die on the cross, rise again, and then send the Holy Spirit to live in you to give you the power to live that Christian life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So our only hope is Christ in us. Christ for us, Christ in us. Christ died for us, he's for us, The cross is all what he did for us, and then Christ in us, he gives us the power to live it out. So we can remain steadfast, we can endure suffering, we can have testimonies of our lives that impact others, and we can be a people of prayer because Christ is in us, giving us the power to do that. No matter how crazy the world gets, we can look to him because God is sovereignly orchestrating history to its end, and he's called us to be a part of, of it where we are right now. Not to be passive, but to trust in Him and live for Him. So, that's where we're ending up tonight. Do you guys have any questions, comments, snide remarks? I've been talking a lot tonight. I'm going to get some water here. Next, Next week we finish up. Next week's our last Wednesday night before we take a break for the Christmas holidays. and So, we'll finish up Daniel next week with chapter 12. was so kind of a weird lesson tonight cuz it's a lot of history but any other questions? If not, we'll quit. We'll conclude. You guys okay with concluding? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have tonight to to look at your word. I know Daniel's dense. It's confusing. There's a lot of information there, but Lord, help us just to remember these these four things tonight. Lord, help us to be a people that are stand firm. In, in, your, in your grace, Lord, that we're, that we're men of faith. Lord, help us to endure suffering well when we are persecuted, when we do suffer. Give us the strength. Lord, help our lives to be a testimony to teach others. Help us to be impacting others in our attitude and our actions. And, and Lord, help us to be men of prayer that we can lead our, our, our families and be the men you've called us to be. And so, Lord, thank you for this opportunity tonight we've had to worship you through the book of Daniel. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.